0: I don't know, David. That's some kind of story. It's not a story. A UFO lands in the back of your house and puts something in your mom and dad's neck, and then it gets your teacher and the police and your friend Heather and her father, Ed, from the telephone company. How did it get Mrs. McKelch? She said the frogs came from around Copper Hill. She must have been there. Stay right there a minute. well. Mrs. McCalch David seems concerned about an injury to you. To your neck. My neck? Yes, he, he says that you're wearing a bandage. Why, yes. I have a boil on my neck. A boil? A boil. You know, I could help you clear that up if you just let me take a look at it. Don't touch me. I want the boy. If you don't give him to me. I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding and appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. This isn't your standard film review, rather it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with a little bit of background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers, so if you'd like to be surprised... Please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, subscribe. Our season long theme of the Summer of Canon just continues to roll on. And this week, the LSCE delves into the genre of sci fi as we screen Toby Hooper's 1986 cult classic remake, Invaders from Mars. Join us! Well hi there all, sorry for the delay, but I had some family and work obligations come up and so it just seemed prudent that we would delay the release of last week's episode. So you know, you're gonna get a two-for-one special this week, so hopefully you like that. Once again, I would like to invite you now to join me on a trip down memory lane, back to the magical year of 1987. Where, on one innocuous summer Sunday afternoon, as I played with my Legos, WPWR-TV announced that the afternoon movie was going to be screened, and it was going to be 1953's William Carroll Menzies sci-fi classic, the original Invaders from Mars. In the glow of some buttery warm sunshine, I watched in rapt horror as young David McLean discovered a flying saucer with his father, only to have dear old dad disappear into the night as he crests over the rise of the hill that faces their house. In the morning, Pop wasn't acting like himself, he was hostile, he was surly, he's got this weird gross puncture wound on the back of his neck, and then other folks in the town start to act funny, and that's when they head out to the sandy area over the hill, where in all Technicolor glory, we get to see them panic as they're sucked down into the sand and carried off by hulking green aliens, of course to be subjected to their mind control. Now, in hindsight, had I been able to watch the entire film from start to finish, it would not have been the traumatic experience that it ended up turning into. But this was a Sunday afternoon, so by the ancient laws of Chicago suburban Italians, I was forced to abandon this feature three fourths of the way through to go dine with my grandparents and extended family. My horror was temporarily forgotten, lost in a plate of spaghetti, meatballs, hot sausage, beef ribs, and baked artichokes with salads. I played with my cousins, I got to eat ice cream, and I I got to forget all about those disturbing things that had scared me that afternoon until I went home and went to bed that evening. And then the images of countless unseen horrors that the Martians could have inflicted upon those people kept playing through my head. Now it would be a whole eight years that would pass bringing us to 1995. When I was at a friend's house and I got to see the 1986 remake that is this week's feature. And this time, much as before, I did find myself enthralled in what was playing out on the screen, remembering what I had previously seen and appreciating sort of the homage that was taking place. Hey, I'll freely admit I was no connoisseur at the time, but I could recognize when something was meant to be tribute versus making fun of it, at least when it came to B-movies about an alien invasion. But Honestly, if we're gonna talk about this interesting remake, we have to set the stage as to just where Canon was at this point in time and focus on the director who was under contract to get this film made. The Marvelous, Toby Hooper. (music) Let's start with Canon first. Now, something that needs to be understood at this time. Menahem Golan and Yoram Globus were starting to, for good or ill, buy in to some of the hype that had been floating around Hollywood about them. They liked being the Go-Go Boys. They were schlockmeisters who cranked out bargain-based entertainment and then made a mint, leasing it or selling the video rights off internationally. Having a brush with legitimacy and almost getting an Oscar for one of their pictures with Runaway Train, that sort of set Golan off well, he maybe already was off, he sort of just got lost with this obsession of, again, I have to get an Oscar pick. So going against the very model that he and his cousin had established, which made them successful in the first place, he started to... Increase funding for pictures that he was shooting. Never mind the fact that in his partnership he was A, not the money man, and B, the bulk of their products didn't warrant that level of spending, but based at least on how Canon was creating them. To him, he was just always one blockbuster away from showing all of his critics and he started with Globus sort of in tow to make decisions that were questionable at best. Case in point, Canon announced that it would be increasing its slate of movies for release in 1986. Now you got to keep in mind a regular big studio would put something out like six to eight films a year. Canon when it started announced what was then considered a very ambitious goal of putting films out back in 1980 so here they were now holding a press conference to announce that they were going to be releasing a staggering 50 plus Films the following year at least one film a week they would go on then to buy up even more means of distribution striking a deal to purchase the British company Thorn EMI which suddenly gave Canon ownership of L Street Studios which you know some very minor pictures had been filmed in the past movies like 2001 Space Odyssey Star Wars The Shining Indiana Jones you know little things like that they also got access to buy 287 film screens across the country of Britain, and they had access to the entire Pathé catalog of films as well as their newsreel library, which instantly gave them 40% of the European market overnight. For men who didn't like to spend more than a couple million dollars on any one picture, that deal set them back a staggering $266 million, and started a rather outspoken critical examination of the company, with outsiders accusing them of trying to establish a monopoly over the European film market. It didn't stop there though. Stateside, Canon bought out the Commonwealth Theater chain which gave them an additional 425 screens in America, while at the same time they signed a rather lucrative deal with Viacom Entertainment to exclusively show over 60 films from the Canon library on their premium cable station, Showtime. And that put $100 million back into their coffers overnight. How did they drive it up and get that much? Well, in typical fashion, while they were dealing with Showtime, they were simultaneously talking to HBO, initially set to go with the latter of the two companies, but then leaving them at the altar at the 11th hour when Viacom swooped in and agreed to give them exactly what they wanted. But hey, if you want to make money, you gotta spend money, right? What better way to show that you're doing well than to buy yourself a brand new office building? The same year that Invaders from Mars would make its screen debut, February 1986, Canon bought a new corporate headquarters and moved to downtown LA, coinciding their acquisition with a gala that kicked off the release of their newest Chuck Norris Lee Marvin action film, Delta Force. I can hear you. Where does Hooper play into all of this? Well, honestly, if you've listened to our previous episode where we covered the marvelous space vampire film Life Force, seriously, go check it out, you would recall that after having a really rough time in dealing with Steven Spielberg on Poltergeist, Hooper was enticed by Canon to sign a three picture deal that would limit his budget but give him pretty much complete creative control to tell the stories he wanted. And that's how we got a film that is an unbridled, almost two-hour epic where Matilda May walks around London completely nude while a plague of zombie-like thralls swarm the city, draining all of those they encounter of their very essence. Chef's kiss! But during the shooting of Life Force, before the release, Golan was so sure that this was going to be a spectacular hit that he started pressing the director on what exactly he wanted to do next, when Hooper, who was engaging in A Flight of Fancy, stated, you know, I've always really wanted to remake a childhood favorite of mine. It was a disturbing cult film that left a big impression on me, 1953's Invaders from Mars. To Golan and Globus, it just ticked all the right boxes. I mean, think about it. It's sci-fi, it has aliens, you got a precocious kid, and it could be spun to be a fun family adventure. Something you need to take into consideration, at this point in time, sci-fi was this white-hot genre for the 1980s. I mean, look at Star Wars, E.T. This, of course, would be the next big thing. And once they got a taste of this, especially with their hot space vampire flick out there, how could they not want to make a mint off of the very idea that the guy who did the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Poltergeist was going to be coming out with a new movie about aliens so before they could even see what kind of reaction and what kind of return life force would give them on their investment Golan went out and he purchased the rights to invaders and he started to pull out all the stops to get film production rolling to them it was like hey we're gonna be printing money why not make it look good and that's exactly when the trouble started With an initial budget of $7 million, Hooper assembled again a team of creators that knew what they were doing. You got Dan O'Bannon, fresh off of working on Life Force and just completing his own punk zombie masterpiece and future episode for sure, Return of the Living Dead. And he brought with him Don Jacoby to pen the script trying, indeed, to be faithful to the original Richard Blake offering. Special effects were gonna sell all of this, so Hooper called in a bunch of favors and, again, got the great John Dykstra, the man who gave us lightsabers and Star Wars, and, of course, the wonderful Stan Winson, the guy who gave us predators, Jurassic Park dinosaurs, etc. I mean, what's not to love? to come on board and collaborate and work out the kinks in creating some newfangled Martians for the 1980s. Winston himself had to leave the design process of the film early on, mainly so he can fulfill his contract to design the Alien Queen for James Cameron's forthcoming film Aliens, and so he left his team with the capable hands of William Stout, a designer who had cut his teeth on films like Conan the Barbarian, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and First Blood. Stout equally he had just finished working with Obannon on Return of the Living Dead and it was noted that he was the genius who brought the Gorehounds the iconic tarman so truthfully this guy was no slouch and he got to work creating the Martian supreme intelligence and the rather toothy looking drones Stout took some advice from special effects wizard Rick Baker when it came to designing the drones, giving them a rather distinctive build and opting to have their knees bend the opposite of the way they walked, which would prove to be a challenge. When completed, the Martian drones were a feat of movie design magic that would be used later by Stan Winston when he was working out the kinks on building his final version of the Alien Queen for Aliens. To give them that disturbing and otherworldly gait, two performers would be placed inside of a drone unit suit. Full-size stuntman would walk backwards and operate ski poles that would control the creature's elongated hands, and then. Strapped to that stuntman's back was a little person who acted as the puppeteer, who had controlled the creature's head and jaw movements, creating a really truly bizarre character in the process. It was costly, it was insanely hard to get the actors to operate, and with the initial limited budget given for the production by Canon, they could only actually afford to make two drone suits, so they had to be very, very clever in editing to make it appear that the large Martian ship housed far more than what we just see there. The Supreme Intelligence creature was just a standard puppet that would take three operators to control, allowing them to make the animatronics light up the face, pump the various air bladders within to make it look like it was appearing to breathe and pulsate, and finally, to simply manipulate it all around its long tail appendage. For the cast, what you have here is a rather interesting and talented character actor consortium. Hunter Carson was cast as the lead, David Gardner, the boy who fears the aliens are infiltrating his community. Carson was the son of actor-screenwriter L.M. Kit Carson and Scream actress Karen Black. Black herself was cast in this film to play David's school nurse, Ms. Linda Magnuson, the only adult who actually believes his concerns and does attempt to help him. For the roles of David's parents, Timothy Bottoms was cast as George Gardner, David's kind scientist dad, and SNL alum actress, Lorraine Newman was cast as Ellen Gardner, David's doting mother. After that, we really crank up the character actor lineup because what you got here is a really great crew. You got Bud Cort showing up as the naive NASA scientist, James Caron as the gung-ho Marine General, and then delivering a rather scenery-chewing performance, you have what would be this film's main antagonist, the great Louise Fletcher. Nurse Ratchet herself, from one flew over the cuckoo's nest, she shows up here as David's Martian controlled teacher, who attempts to hunt him down and drag him back to the spaceship for quote, implantation. In a loving touch, Hooper also cast Jimmy Hunt, the very actor who portrayed young David in the original 1953 film, to show up here as the chief of police in the movie. Filming itself started in July of 1985 in and around Los Angeles proper, and it was supposed to wrap by August. But a series of delays, in part caused by Golan's cheapness, and then later by Golan's own insistence to make things bigger, louder, and scarier, kept moving the goalpost on when the film was actually going to be canned. What did help was the inclusion of the very real United States Marines who agreed to show up with their equipment and their very real weapons to be shot in the background, helping pad out the scope of these action scenes. But delay after delay kept occurring, and being overscheduled by one month, that drifted into two and then it was three. At one point, the cast started to joke that they knew the filming had come to an end because the power would eventually be completely turned off on them when they were on set, Invaders from Mars would eventually be completed by November of 1985, which by some estimations, which I would personally agree with, ballooned the budget from a modest $7 million to more like $12 million, something that was unfortunately starting to happen on the regular with Canon. For their part, the Go-Go Boys shouted from the heavens that they had this amazing film that they were working on, taking out full-page ads in Variety, touting, Canon, the company of the future, brings you Invaders from Mars. Now, I could go on a little more, but geez, folks, you've been ever so patient in listening to me prattle on. How's about I just shut up and we get to that trailer? What do you say? nightmare in his own backyard. But no one will listen. landed right back there, right behind the hill. No. no one will believe. I told you, he needs psychiatric help. And soon, no one will be left. Dad? Are you okay, Dad? Fine. Because something strange is happening to the people of Willow Creek. Everything's fine now. And David Gardner is about to find out why. David, I'm. Done. presents Toby Hooper's invaders from Mars there's no place on earth to hide We open on an idyllic fall evening where 12-year-old David Gardner, as played by Hunter Carson, is sprawled out in his backyard looking up at the stars with his scientist father, George Gardner, as played by Timothy Bottoms, commenting on their beauty and how David himself would one day like to be an astronaut. David's mother, Helen, as played by Lorraine Newman, jokingly enters and spoils their fun, calling both of her boys into the house to come to bed. After all, it is a school night. As the thunderstorm rolls in, David peacefully begins to drift off to sleep, only to be awakened by strange sounds and flashing lights, seeing what appears to be an alien spacecraft descending from the atmosphere and touching down on the top of Old Copper Hill, right behind his house. Understandably concerned, David races to wake up his parents. Oh, oh, dad. Oh, dad. Dad. dad, dad. Quick, get up, get up. Dad, dad, dad. What? Come on, you got to come see. A huge UFO that i right the hill with all these weird lights. Come on, Run! on. What? Quick. What is that light. Run. And it was really great. Yeah. I'm so glad you got him a telescope It was huge. And it's really bright. with all these strange lights. It landed right back there behind the hill. Ah, I bet it was ball lightning. No, Dad, I know what ball lightning is. It wasn't that. It was something else. A UFO. It must have been. Well, could it have been something from the base? No, Mom, it wasn't a plane. I've never seen anything like this before. Maybe it was a meteorite. No way, Dad. You're Back to bed! I'll look when it's light, okay? Back bed. While they do believe he's imagining it, for his part, George at least does David the courtesy. He believes his son did see something, and so he takes it upon himself to head out early in the morning to investigate. When David wakes, his father comes downstairs, acting rather strangely detached, having gone and investigated the hill alone overnight by himself. He's missing his slippers, he's talking in a rather forced manner, and he has a strange wound across the back of his neck and is dismissive of his son's questions. Later, when David is walked to the bus stop, he offers to show him what's actually over the hill, but David hops on the bus before any of that can happen. Let me walk you to the bus stop. You were right, son. There is something over the hill. What? When David is at school though, he has a bit of a rough day He finds himself the victim of a prank involving a frog That ends up drawing the ire of his frumpy teacher Mrs. McKelch, as played by Louise Fletcher Which causes him to accidentally cut himself And ends up getting him sent to see the school nurse, Linda Magnuson As played by Karen Black Happy to get home, he ends up confiding in his mother that he's worried about his dad, but she tells him not to worry, he's just working hard, and he's a bit stressed. When George doesn't come home, though, after work, she ends up calling the police, and they all go out to investigate Copper Hill themselves. George emerges from the bushes next to the house, frightening his wife and bringing with him a random man. Ed is played by William Frankfather. The police end up returning, but they're now acting equally strange, and all of the adults awkwardly depart. After dinner, George insists that Helen should accompany him on a walk up over the hill, and to David's horror, in the morning, his mother is just as robotic and distant as his father, but now she's insisting that they take David up to the hill after school for a picnic, although he begs off. David starts becoming even more paranoid at school, watching for strange behavior with others, noting that Mrs. McKelch is acting even more weird than usual, and she's now sporting a bandage across the back of her neck. When he observes her in the classroom, he decides that during recess he'll follow her, and he ends up making his way into the science storeroom, where he witnesses Mrs. McKelch devouring one of the frogs that was going to be used for dissection. She catches him, along with a changed classmate, Heather, as played by Virginia. Yakini, who chases him through the halls. But David ends up finding refuge with Miss Magnuson, who puts him in her office and refuses to let Mrs. McKelch have him. David unloads all of his fears to Miss Magnuson, who is skeptical at first, but starts to believe him when she sees an obsessive Mrs. McKelch avoiding her questions. Miss Magnuson gives David a way out and tells him, go to her house just to be safe. As school lets out, though, David ends up stowing away in a van to hide from both Heather and Mrs. McKelch, but his teacher ends up entering the vehicle and driving it out to the hill. David follows her as she enters a newly drilled tunnel and finds himself within the alien ship, witnessing McKelch interact with strange aliens a toothy set of Martian drones, and a bizarre, supreme intelligence, who seems to be controlling the various townsfolk with probes placed in the back of their necks. As David watches all of this unfold, the intelligence sees him, and sends drones and Mrs. Mckelch tearing after him, causing the young boy to flee back to town. Magnuson ends up running into him, and after he describes what he's seen, she starts to again have doubts about his sanity and her own until she and David witness some NASA technicians that George purposely sent up to the hill get violently sucked underground by the Martians. They attempt to hide at the school, but they end up running afoul of the police, who chase them down into the boiler room, and just before they can be shot... A Martian boar breaks through the floor, neutralizing the officers and allows the fugitives to flee. David and Magnuson go to the military to ask them for help and get in touch with General Wilson, as played by James Caron, who runs the base that both NASA and SETI scientists, much like George, are working at. Wilson is a bit skeptical of their story at first, until two of his own men are shown to be sporting neck band-aids and attempt to attack the general himself. When they're arrested, their implants automatically kill them to keep them from talking about the alien plans, thus, getting Wilson's full attention. Oh my God. They're dead. What? <coughs> Jesus! Oh! don't touch those things! Seal the base perimeter. Alert! Security! Get those NASA hot shots back over here right away. Maybe they can tell us what the hell this is all about. And I want the nurse and the kid brought back here right now! Lock off the launch area! Yes, sir! For his part, George has been utilized by the Martians to sabotage the experimental rockets that are being developed to support a trip to Mars. David and Linda end up meeting with Dr. Mark Weinstein, as played by Bud Court, a colleague of George's who notes that the Martians may be doing this because they don't want humans to come and travel to Mars. George's planted explosions go off, detonating the rocket, and the general ends up rallying a platoon of troops along with David leading them. Upon entering the Martian tunnels and going into the ship, the soldiers encounter Martian drones, and before the military can stop him, Dr. Weinstein rushes out ahead and attempts to talk to the aliens, trying to peacefully communicate with them, offering up copper wiring that the creatures seem to covet so much. During his introduction, Weinstein ends up being vaporized by the Martians with one of their ray guns, and the drones are subsequently shot dead by the military. While waiting outside, David runs towards the pit full tilt, willingly letting himself get taken in an effort to find his mother and father, causing Linda to rush in after him and for Miller to mount a rescue mission. David and Linda end up being captured by the Martian drones and they're brought before the Supreme Intelligence, where Mrs. McKelch watches and mocks the boy. Where's Linda? Linda's very busy right now. Let her go! You're a lucky boy, David Gardner. Not everybody gets to meet the Supreme Martial Intelligence. Can... can... can I talk to you? Please, don't hurt, Linda. And if you can just give me your... You've been quite a bit of trouble to us already, David Gardner. They didn't do any harm to you. My mom, dad, Linda, all the others. They're good people. They would never hurt you. It's too late. It's too late. Shut up, I'm talking to him. Please. It's too late. Stay after school every day for the rest of my life. You will just shut up (laughs) a (laughs) second. Don't you understand? You can't do this to people. You can't control them. It's wrong. You're not going to get away with it. One, two, three, four, five. Please, can't you give me my mom and dad back and Linda and Heather? Mrs. McKell. It's your turn now, David Gardner. No way. Poor little guy. Poor little guy. David attempts to sway the Martian leader to give him back his family and friends, but when that doesn't work, he ends up in frustration punching the Supreme Intelligence and ends up wrestling with Mrs. McElch, knocking her backwards and into a drone, who promptly eats her alive. David hooks back up with Miller and his men and leads him to the implantation room, where they save Linda and they cause the Supreme Intelligence and the drones to retreat. The Marines end up planting charges throughout the spacecraft, and David, learning that copper powers the Martian ray guns, gives pennies to the soldiers to use as ammo to blow their way out of the craft. The platoon race out of the ship as it starts to power up its engines to flee, but David is distracted and ultimately finds himself being chased, by his mind-controlled parents, who end up following him off of the ship and all the way back to their home. The Martian ship does manage to take off, but it ends up detonating in mid-air, which frees George and Helen from their control. As the family hold each other, and Martian craft explodes, a wall of fire ends up rushing towards them, seeming like it will engulf everyone. David, then, drenched in sweat, awakens, in his bed, Screaming for his parents, and they come running to his bedroom, comforting him, assuring him that he's just having a nightmare and that he's indeed safe. After confirming that there's nothing on the back of either of their necks, David relaxes. He lays down to go to sleep, and a thunderstorm begins to roll in. David stares out of his window, and strange sounds and flashing lights start to fill the sky. An alien spaceship ends up descending from the atmosphere and touches down on top of Old Copper Hill, right behind his house. His dream had been a premonition, and with a sickening sense of deja vu, David runs panicking into his parents' room, yelling for help. Upon bursting through the door, the camera focuses only on David's face as he screams in abject terror as to what's going on in the room with his parents as guttural Martian drone grunts loudly build to a crescendo as credits roll. Oh man, where do we even start? Well, Let's talk about what works here, at least for me. In my humble opinion, it's overwhelmingly evident that Hooper clearly loved the source material because he translates that veneration on the big screen with such subtle nods, tongue-in-cheek references, and he really tries to ratchet up the terror in the same vein just for a new generation of viewers. This was funded and made purposely by the Go-Go Boys to try to cash in on the sci-fi craze of the 1980s, and Hooper seems to know that, and he delivered, but not really in a way that they expected. So many corrupted examples of what we would consider now to be Spielbergian tropes abound here. One has to wonder if it was Hooper's not-so-subtle jab to the man who caused him such stress back when they were working together on Poltergeist, or if this was even more of a callback to aping the very thing that the go-go boys at Cannon had wanted. E.T. has a frog scene. We need a frog scene. Spielberg uses falling stars for his idyllic establishing shots. Give us lots of stars! But, as author Rob Latham has pointed out, when it's done here in Hooper's Invaders, it's all done with a rather sinister bend to it. Yeah, 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 we get to see a star fall, and we get to experience a moment of brief wonderment before we then see the terrifying arrival of the Martian ship as it buries itself in the ground to remain undetected. Sure, yeah, you have frogs, but instead of having them used in a rousing scene that's played for laughs and wonderment, where they're set free like an in E.T., instead we get this horrific experience of seeing Mrs. McKelch noshing on them in the school science lab. You want a loving, tight knit family? Well, portrayed by Bottoms and Newman, they do fit the bill, until they're corrupted by the gross Martian neck implants. Watching Lorraine Newman blankly gorge herself on raw hamburger is both funny and chilling in its own right, and it allows us to experience David's unbridled horror as his parents are clearly not acting as the loving, supportive people that he knows. Not hungry, David? You feel alright? I don't think he's feeling well, George. Hmm. I have an idea. Why don't we all go on a picnic up at the hill? Mom, you've got classes. We'll go this afternoon. It's wonderful up there. Your father showed me a place you've never seen before. Is this a joke? We'll have a wonderful time. I'll pack us a lunch. Hamburgers. You like that, don't you? I don't want to go. <laughs> Indeed, what we have here had to be really toned down in the end. As we mentioned previously, the film had an ending that was deemed too dark, so Hooper was forced to offer up the current ending that we have today. You see, originally the movie was to end with David walking in and panicking. When he saw the Martian craft indeed touching down to the hill outside of his window, causing him to run down the hall to his parents' room, and then, when he opens the door, he would encounter Martian drones greedily eating the bedding, having already devoured both of his parents, before turning on the young lad as he screams in terror. Personally, I think that would have been a proper way to end this film, but instead we're left with just a bright light shining on his face with growling noises, and David screaming at the unknown before the credits roll. Cindy Hendershot has noted that the story of Invaders from Mars digs deep at the Atomic Age paranoia, where loved ones are not what they seem to be and wish us harm, where trusted authority figures are blind to real threats, or even worse, they've been co-opted by outside forces that are bent on dominance. And all of it is couched in a story where the sum of society's greatest fears is first seen in our, by way of David's, prophetic dreams, only to have us as the audience experience David's waking nightmare. This, of course, is all baked into its Cold War-rooted origin story, but honestly, since this remake happened at the time that the Cold War was at its zenith, none of that paranoia actually feels out of place. I think the aliens are marvelously done, they have the right level of menace, yet the right amount of goofy that really balances it here. Acting-wise, Karen Black, solid, as is Bottoms, Newman, Court, and James Karen. For most people who watch the film, though, the main thing they end up remembering is the unbridled intensity that Louise Fletcher brings here. How she constantly is chasing after David, a mind-controlled teacher with the focus of a Terminator, running after him in the street, even as he makes his escape by way of moving vehicle, screaming and shouting his name with anger and frustration. Fletcher plays it so cold, so angry, that it makes one wonder what she would actually do if she got her hands on the boy. Not exactly sure if she would really turn him over to the Martians as she had been ordered to, but perhaps leaving her to do something worse. Which makes all of her interactions with Nurse Magnuson all the more intense when she demands that her co-workers simply hand over her quarry. David, what's wrong? I've had it with you. Mrs. McElch, what is the problem? I told you this boy was trouble, and he needs to be severely punished. David, what's the
1: matter? He she, knocked she, over she, a
0: defenseless little girl. But I, and he's a little snoop. Please, Mrs. McCalch. why don't we just talk with each other? Give him to me. Please let me talk to him. David, go inside my office. You're pushing it, sister. I'll be back for him in five minutes. Five minutes! Honestly, for me, the hink factor, the issue of this film, comes from the performance of our lead, Hunter Carson, who I do have to admit I personally find to be a bit grating. I don't doubt his portrayal of a scared boy. I just wish he was not such of a whiny subject to follow around. Yet, I'll say this, even at his most annoying, he does manage to convey a sense of terror as his reality is stripped away, and his friends and family start turning into hostile individuals. I think if his performance was just dialed down a slight notch, the rest of this could have indeed been a bit scarier, but I'll freely tell you, yeah. I know, this isn't Shakespeare, so it's meant to be a summer popcorn film, and perhaps even I should temper my expectations and just sit back and enjoy the ride. But, as grating as I do find him, the film does make a lot of sense, at least on paper. David is supposed to be a 12-year-old boy. We're viewing his dream, and more specifically, his nightmare. So all these things that seem to be corny, awkward, weird, out of place, or things that make us pause and wonder why an adult would behave in such a certain fashion you know, not a Martian controlled one, mind you one then has to step back and realize that we are experiencing this story through the world and the perception of a child who is dreaming that he is in a nightmare and he's a hero in his own community and then it all snaps back into focus and makes sense, you just need to put it in the right context now I'm sure all of you are waiting with bated breath, asking, Chris, how was this film received? Well, it should come as no surprise that criticism here was mixed at best. Those who loved it, loved it. But those who hated it, hated hard and made no bones about it. For the positive side of things, Maitland McDonough of the Film Journal praised Hooper for his tactical sense, knowing not to go too far from the original source work, and instead, leaving well enough alone, he focuses instead on bringing Winston and Dykstra in to create the visual effects. Where fanged alien drones slobber and bobble on weird jointed legs, a stunted supreme Martian intelligence, a vaguely fetal sort of armadillo-like creature with a long spinal cord tail, who hunkers down on a gigaresque throne, and of course a vicious school t-shirt come Martian who swallows a whole wriggling frog. Viewers who pine for the day of charmingly cheesy monster zip-up suits may still not be captivated, but all others should be pretty amused. Nina Darton of the New York Times thought that Hooper's updated take on A Child's Worst Nightmare was masterfully done, noting his great angles and his ability to keep the story humming along giving kudos to his ability to allow the cast to transform from loving, warm humans into menacing automatons. And while she does give props to the special effects, she does note that the second half of the film, where we see everything, is not as strong as the first, commenting that the hinting of the unknown is far scarier than just showing it. Harley Laud of Box Office bemoaned that Invaders from Mars just proved that Toby Hooper was in a rut, And while he found Life Force to be a jumbled mess, he did call this remake of a classic film at least ambitious, before then laying into all the things he felt were wrong with it. The misdirection of actors, the muddled storyline, the illogical plot explanation that doesn't seem to jibe with 1986's sophisticated audiences. Even with the $12 million budget and the special effect work, this remake will fall flat on all accounts. Variety's lore opened his review, after seeing the film at Cannes as being an embarrassing combination of kitsch and boredom. With the exception of some interesting scenes where the monster is created by Stan Winston, this picture marks two wipeouts in a row after 1985's Life Force for Hooper, and his ongoing employer, Cannon Films. Subpar acting, tired cliches are trotted out. Ouch. Now, I have to point out. I do understand this film isn't everybody's cup of tea, but the part of the variety review that really sort of explains the film's problems comes in sort of an offhand comment that the black humor accompanying many of the scenes of this film elicits groans. This is inherently the problem with Invaders from Mars, and I'll cop to this. It's neither fish nor fowl. Which, if you've been listening and you know my track record, that really sorts of explains the kind of things that I like. It's too goofy, and it spends a lot of its time playing things straight as a heart attack for sake of spoofing the original while trying to project this wholesome family film image. And yet, it is an exercise in horror. And when it does go horror, it goes pretty intense when it comes around. And it's not just a little bit of green slime, guts, and gore. So, you lose both the family-friendly audiences who are hoping to catch another E.T. outing, and at the same time, what you do is you let down all of these hardcore 80s gore hounds who paid good admission to see a fun horror movie, and instead, they sit down to get a bit of winking satire. It's nothing that anyone wanted. The fact would remain, though. When Invaders from Mars opened on June 6th, 1986, it was going up against Schwarzenegger's Raw Deal, Space Camp, and My Little Pony the Movie. And all of those were competing against Top Gun, Cobra, Poltergeist 2, and Short Circuit. It would end up making its debut as seventh for its American release, and when its box office numbers didn't wildly improve after about a week, Canon would end up yanking it from theaters after one more week of disappointing returns, earning back only $4.9 million against its $12 million budget. Making things somewhat ironic, the Sylvester Stallone film, Cobra, which was number three at the box office that week, was itself a canon production, yet it was distributed by Warner Brothers. So while the GoGo Boys were making money off of one success, by way of their own release schedule, they were cannibalizing their other output. Invaders from Mars was quickly shuffled off to the video store bins and to screenings on Deep cable. What's more, it was yet again another financial blow to Canon, which was continuing to ramp up now its spending in the face of having fewer and fewer financial wins. For his part, Hooper had once again made a film that he'd wanted to make, and he was pressured to deliver now on making a sequel to The Texas Chainsaw Massacre for his third Canon contractual film, which he would indeed go on to make, but that will have to be another story for another day. Over the years, Hooper would look back on this movie in a rather rueful way, commenting that perhaps it was a film that was made for all the wrong reasons, but it's still something that he likes to revisit from time to time. Invaders from Mars as a remake would go on to become a cult classic. It was a kid's film that wasn't for kids, a horror movie that wasn't exactly that horrific, and it found new life with millennials who caught it growing up on cable or found it as a rental in their local video stores. I'm not going insult your intelligence and tell you that this is a film that offers any sort of life-changing experience, but like so many of these 80s remakes, and I'm lumping it in with The Thing, The Fly, The Blob, they were made by people who actually loved and respected the source material, who wanted to make a better version for a more modern age, rather than what we so often see now with remakes, which is, it's just a blatant cash grab to try to use some well-known intellectual property. For me, that's why even here, in this case, while it may have missed the As a B-movie, it still really ages well, and it has solid legs that can be enjoyed on multiple levels, now some almost 40 years on. At Canon, though, things were afoot. The budgets for their pictures kept getting bigger. And although the returns were remaining somewhat the same, in spite of Globus and his misgivings, Menahem Golan was convinced that they could just spend their way out of this problem. All it would take would be a single major blockbuster, and they would be back in the black and on top of their game. The problem though, and with all of these other purchases, was the rapid expansion that Canon had gone through, and that huge slate of films that they publicly promised to deliver. To simply keep the lights on for the company without going into the red, Canon Film Group had to make a weekly nut of at least five million dollars, or they would start sliding into debt fast. Having bitten off quite a bit more than they seemed to be able to chew, Canon was still remaining as a spectacle. Although now, Hollywood studios were starting to take notice, both because Canon was experiencing such success, at least as much as it was touting, And if it did finally deliver on having a blockbuster like it wanted, that would indeed change the power dynamic in the town. But more importantly, whispers were starting to crop up that Cannon was having a massive financial catastrophe, and it was just a time bomb waiting to go off, with lots of folks that the Go-Go Boys had screwed over in the past seemingly very interested in having a front-row seat to being there when everything would go south. Here's the bizarre part. Golan was giving interviews and telling folks just about how thrifty he was with all of Cannon's money, citing, of course, his previous operating model, even though it was he, not his cousin Globus, who was consistently breaking the rules they set. In an interview with Robert Friedman of The Village Voice, he was privy to see how Golan operated, negotiating on a phone call with an agent and two producers on behalf of actor Roy Scheider for a film that would eventually become 52 Pick a rough John Frankenheimer adaptation of a fairly decent Elmore Leonard novel. The group had wanted $8 million to get the film made, and Golan countered that, well, I think you got a $4 million surplus with your budget. When they offered to share their numbers, Golan was dismissive with them. I'm I'm telling you, without looking at your budget, there's no way this movie should be made for $8 million. What are you going to do with $8 million? You could buy a country. The producers on the other end of the line proceeded to list their expenses. Well, we'll give a million dollars to scheider love two hundred thousand dollars for his female lead which would end up being Anne margaret by the way three hundred thousand dollars each for the director and the producer and then another seven hundred thousand dollars to pay the remaining cast the go-go boy countered fine fine so you've got a 2.5 million dollar in above the line cost but where's the other two million dollars below the line that's $4.5 million. Where's the rest? And the producer tried to explain, Look, we don't pad our budgets out. We just know what things are going to cost here. That's when Golan interrupted them. Look, let's cut out all this Hollywood bullshit. When you come here, you're not coming to Universal or Paramount. We're not rich people. We're just two filmmakers fighting against everything that's not up there on the screen. After hanging up, Golan ended up turning to Friedman without any sense of self-reflection or irony and said, I think Hollywood's really gone bananas with these budgets. I mean, the effect that a movie can do $200 million worth of revenue has made everyone a little crazy, clearly not taking into account that that was his exact goal as well. As we'll see next week, tapping into the sci-fi craze was not the only bandwagon that the boys of canon were attempting to jump on. As we will see, they gave a serial adventure franchise a go, attempting to make their own off-brand Indiana Jones knockoff by updating H. Ryder Haggard's classic 19th century character Allan Quatermain for the 80s. But that is going to have to wait until we reconvene next week. The version of Invaders from Mars, screened here at the LSCE, is the now out of print 2005 MGM Midnight Madness double-featured disc that combined this fine film with the equally odd 1983 sci-fi film offering Strange Invaders, which is indeed a nice bonus, but it's not why I got it in the first place. The good folks at Shout Factory had released a really swanky Blu-ray version of the film back in 2015, and it did come with some really nice extras which included featurettes like a career in Canon, Mission to Mars, Red Planet Recollections, as well as interviews, concept art, and trailers. But that multi-format Blu-ray DVD combo has also gone out of print, and I gotta say people are really letting me down, gouging hard out there right now, attempting to sell a new multi-format disc for $189.99 on Amazon Z Shops. I mean, don't get me wrong, this movie's fun, but it's not that fun. The movie, though, is available for digital purchase if that's how you do things, showing up in multiple places, but for this instance, here, if you were to go to Prime Video, you can get yourself a copy digitally for $14.99, which, yeah, I'll admit, that's decent, but all around, it could be done better. But Not to worry, let's say you don't have any cash, because at least as of this recording, both the 1953 and the 1986 versions of Invaders from Mars can be seen for free. That's right, free on the Tubi app, which if you don't know how that is, it itself is free. So for those of you with a Roku or with an Amazon Fire Stick, you can just download the app and then you can stream these movies in the comfort of your own home. Pretty cool, eh? Now, remember folks, we don't get anything here by telling you where you should buy or watch your movies. Instead, we just feel in this day and age, it's ever so important to keep supporting physical media when we can, so that these fine companies who own the rights to the pictures that we all know and love will keep releasing them for our collective consumption. And at the end of the day, isn't that really what you want? You just want more of that stuff that you know and love? Besides, in this case, Invaders from Mars is such a weird little bauble. It's too hokey to be scary, but it's just too intense to roll out for the youngsters. And it's so full of goofy performances and strange creatures that it truly has something for everybody. So I say to you here, what are you waiting for? Get out there and go see Invaders from Mars today. So that's going to wrap things up for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. We do hope you will join us again, and indeed all summer long, as we run through some more of our favorite titles that canon has brought us over the years. If you like what we're doing here, that would be the LSCE, Dachshunds, and myself, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, and leave us a review. Or hey, just do that wherever you're listening to us on. Did you end up leaving us a review? Hell, I'll read it here and give you a shout-out on the show. Just think of it as my way of saying thank you for recognizing our love of cinema. Please, swing by, check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. We've also recently been added to Stitcher, so you can find us there and give us a spin if you like. I'm also proud to say we're on Amazon Music, so if you have an account, you can simply say, Hey Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street. Today. We're also featured both on Good Pods and on Podchaser. Those are podcast databases for listeners and creators alike. Find us there, give us a follow, a review if you could please, and hey, feel free to like any of the lists that we're a part of to help give us a boost in the old rankings. The more reviews, those increased likes, that affects those marvelous algorithms out there, and it makes us more searchable. And then we can share these fine films with more people. And you want to do that, don't you? Of course you do! If you have any questions for us, any comments, any movies you want us to cover, any things you thought I got wrong, please, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email or an audio clip by way of Linden Street Cinema Experience at gmail.com you love social media well we use it here you can follow us on twitter at lscep or you can find us on instagram at lsce underscore podcast or just simply on facebook at linden street cinema experience if you'd like to be even more personable or wish to contribute a segment in the sidecar please send us an audio message by way of anchor that's a free and easy app to use so until next time please take care out there Wash your hands. Wear a mask. Please, most importantly, everybody, stay healthy and well. And remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night.